that again goes back to why we need to have more about the use cases of these assets and make them low cost or free and collectible. Let them accrue the value and don't overpromise. And that goes for how brands choose their partners and how licenses should choose their brands too. It should be a much more non-exploitative, less financialized, more use case focused scenario. Welcome to the Sporting Crypto Podcast, where we talk to leaders in sports and Web3 about their journeys within this weird world. And joining me on episode two is Silly Tuna, or Alex Amsel, as many of you will know him. Alex, welcome to the show. Hello. Why don't you begin by telling us a bit more about yourself and your journey up until this point? So my main background is a games developer. Been around for, God, nearly 30 years doing games. It's a long time. Yeah, so I basically went to uni, studied AI, which is now the in thing. I was I was there early, like with everything. Uh, then too early, too early. <laughs> then went straight off to do uh, games after that, uh, and worked on over the years a whole myriad of everything from Amiga, PC, PlayStation, a lot of Game Boy games, uh, a lot of mobile games in J to Me days, which is before iPhone. <laughs> Our games were rubbish before the iPhone, and that's when I worked on them. When the <laughs> iPhone came out, I stopped working on them. Coincidence? I don't know. Um, probably, I don't know, about 2011, 2012, we worked on a game called Euphoria, uh, which was an Apple award-winning indie game. Space gardening with fluffy seed death. That's mm. how a Japanese reviewer described it. Nice. I think it's a great game description. Uh, but it was an award-winning game and it did really, really well. And someone emailed me and asked if they could buy it in Bitcoin in 2012. Buy the game or yeah. buy a version of the buy game? The, just, buy the, just, just, buy the, just buy the game. As oh. in like 20, instead of paying $20, pay $20 worth of Bitcoin, which I think at that time it was Bitcoin was $19. So a Bitcoin. Yeah. So it's yeah, $28,000 now. Could have sold one copy of the game. Retired. So I started looking at Bitcoin properly. I had previously known about Bitcoin because I nearly had the machines in our office mining it. And this was in 2009 or 2010, I can't remember. 2009, I Would think. have been quite the pivot from... I, I wish I'd done it. I was like, oh, I'll just keep it. I'll just do it and not keep it. I just never got around to it. Yeah. Oops. And then, um, so I did look at Bitcoin again and I was looking to do something new because uh, we'd made some money and I wanted to do something a bit different. And I actually, I was looking at robotics at the mm. time to do robotics um, or a bit more AI stuff or and then games just on the side, really. But I did get around to looking at Bitcoin. I bought some when it was $49, which was in March 2013. I bought it before I caught a plane. And when I la- when the plane landed, I think it was $75. I was like, I just made $25 or $26. And so the next few months I spent just trading, uh, making money, losing more money. I managed to get a lot of money in when Bitcoin had peaked at uh, $1,066 and then it dropped about 100 or something. But I learned lots about the technology as well, as, as well as about how to trade and how not to trade. And the technology was always really fascinating. And so... Over the, the following year or two, I got to know a lot of the well-known Bitcoin people and now well-known Ethereum people like Vitalik Buterin. Did various experiments, was part of the original Ethereum crowdfunder. And when Ethereum did come out, well, the first thing I wrote on Ethereum was um, essentially what's an NFT project. <laughs> I didn't publish it. I was just trying to see if you put, could you put all the Magic of the Gathering cards, all the different types on Ethereum with all their data, except a link to the image. But gas was a lot cheaper those days. And you could do it for about $20,000. You could put every single Magic the Gathering card on Ethereum. I didn't do it. I wish I had done it, but I probably got sued. And then I started an NFT company as a result of that. This is before they were known as NFTs. And then we sold it in 2017. Then the company we sold it to shut us down six months later. 
instead of keeping us going because they ran out of money. But I carried on doing NFT stuff anyway. Yeah, and just since that time, I've, I've remained involved remained involved in one way or another, a lot of investing, uh, so advising a couple of startups as well. Yeah. Awesome. Fascinating background. And you're also a big sports fan, right? And for your sins, a Wolves fan. Well, you say big sports fan and Wolves fan. So uh, I've seen a lot of non-sports from Wolves, uh, certainly stuff that I could even know. Um, yeah, no, I've, I was a season ticket holder at Wolves even when I was at university down in Exeter. So I used to do the, the trip from Exeter every week when I was at university. And we were consistently... That rubbish. is a long trip. But it was fun. Yeah, so no, I'm a Wolves fan. Um, I'm still a season ticket holder. Um, I do have breaks when I want my weekends back and don't want to be depressed on a Saturday night. But no, I'm still a season ticket holder and... Yeah, big football fan. I have to say, though, I more follow Wolves than football globally these days because I've got a little bit bored of the money-dominating things. But no, no, football's great. I, I love, love team sports and, and so on. And um, as well as football, I uh, follow Formula One as well. Crypto, Web3, whatever people are calling it now, when was the moment for you where you were like, the kind of aha moment where you were like, this is interesting enough for me to spend a lot of time on. It's here to stay and I think it can do some good or, or be really innovative in the, in the future? Crypto generally. Crypto generally. Um, pretty much straight away. Because I've been looking to do something new and you could feel it was different. You could feel it special. And you knew it might not last. Like it, this is 2013 when I started getting more deeply involved and Bitcoin had been around since 2009. So it's four years and I felt I was late. Like it sounds crazy now, but I felt I was really, really late to the party basically. And you realise pretty quickly as a technologist is not just about uh, trading, uh, or at least you don't think it is, like because no one actually knows. Trading is part of it, and financialization is part of it. But the tech was interesting. The way Bitcoin works is interesting. It is still worth reading the original Bitcoin white paper. People get very blasé about it or call them fancy databases. They just don't understand. It's such a paradigm shift, and still a lot of very smart people don't get it. Let's let's touch on that because I've had a hundred as as and you've had a thousand conversations with people. I've you know only been in crypto for five or six years, but like I've had hundreds of conversations with people like way smarter than me that just simply don't get the value of a blockchain or crypto. People make assumptions that it's just a glorified database, but the fundamental thing they're getting wrong is a database solves problem X, a a, big, a, a blockchain solves problem Y, or decent and decentralized platforms generally solve a different problem from databases. You can't compare them because databases are way, way better at solving the problem that databases were designed for. If you're trying to use a blockchain as a database, as many people have tried, it's a disaster. You can't do it very well. It's just woefully inefficient, too expensive, very slow, totally practical for, for any meaningful amount of data searches, anything like that. But if you try and use a database as a blockchain, total disaster. It can't do it. It just gets like, again, we've seen the same stuff happen. It just doesn't work. They are solving different problems. A blockchain is there to solve the problem of not having a trusted entity. Now, if you think that's not a problem, that's a different discussion and that's a worthwhile discussion because it's not a problem everywhere and blockchains often get that wrong. It is a problem in some things though. So databases should be used where databases have been designed to be used. Blockchains should be used where blockchains have been designed to be used. And to some extent, there's a lot of experimentation there. We don't actually know all of it. It might be that in reality, blockchains are only very good at a small subset of things. Mm. And that's okay. Like no one should get upset by that. No one should get angry about it either on either side. It works great for decentralized currency and it works great for digital property ownership. Mm. Maybe there's not much beyond finance and property ownership that they're great for. I want to touch on two things in your history that I think from knowing you for a while now are, are quite key. One being a post you wrote in 2016, this was before NFTs were called NFTs, you called them crypto property. 
Right, and yeah, it never were, took off. It never took off that one. <laughs> Branding, not your strong point. Never claimed it was, but um, has, it, has anyone thought non fungible token was going to be like a a phrase people were talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of us did. Yeah, none of us knew to the extent that literally internally at Ownage, which was my company at the time, we were like, we've got fungible tokens. What do we call the other ones that we're doing? <laughs> that they're not fungible. They're non fungible. What's what does the word fungible means? We're all googling for the word fungible. So, like, who would have thought who, they'd be who, called NFTs? Who's ever going to call None them of us that? knew what fungible even meant. <laughs> but so you wrote, a, you wrote a piece, and you also, I think, at a similar time, did a talk at a um, big gaming convention about blockchain gaming. I'd love you to go into your thinking at the time and, and, and I guess, how it's developed since when it comes to you know, NFTs and games or, or gaming and NFTs. Okay, so the timing is important. So late 2015 is when I wrote the code. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And so we started something then. And then 2016, I was doing talks about it. Not at the big gaming conventions, but at, the, at other smaller crypto mm. events. This is, I think there's one on YouTube of me speaking in New Zealand about it. Oh, nice. Um, I need to look it up. It's, it, it definitely should be on YouTube. I just remember in that particular presentation, some guy kept asking questions. I only got halfway through the presentation and wouldn't shut up. But I, but I did talk there about NFTs. And we just didn't call them that. And then 2017, NFTs were a thing. Crypto kids, I think, had, had sort yeah. of arrived and there were various projects doing stuff. And that was also when I got accepted to do a talk at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, which is the big, big event. And so really my, my thinking all around then was, what if the stuff you buy digitally, what if you actually owned it? And it wasn't just a typical license and an entry on Amazon's database or on Apple's database. Why is that important? Because... And this, I think, has actually got lost recently. I've started talking about it again recently because I think people have lost it in the mm. financialization. If you buy in the physical world, you buy something, it's yours. You can do what you want with it. You can destroy it. You can give it to a friend. You can sell it again. You are still subject to, to your territory's legal protocol, like legal, like laws, essentially. So it doesn't mean you can literally do anything. You are There are still some things around it. You can't just dump a car wherever you want. If you sell a car to a dealer, then the dealer has certain rules about selling it on. There's all this, so there are rules, but fundamentally, you own things and you have physical property rights. And these rights are enshrined in law. And they're laws that have been put together over hundreds, if not thousands of years. And I did some research into this. There were books about it, about why exactly why property law and property rights exist. It actually comes down to efficiency. If you don't have many property rights, good property rights, and this is what it used to be, like in the medieval times, the landowners, the landlords have control of everything. They have control of all the people. They control all the land. So that's what they originally did. It's very inefficient because they just decide what gets done, what doesn't get done. You don't get any innovation either. Innovation wasn't a term then, uh, as far as I know, but you don't get any innovation. So you get a very inefficient use of resources and only a few people get everything. That's how the world used to be. And then gradually we've got property rights, which allow us to own stuff and prevent it being taken away from us and, and so on and so on. In the digital world, that's not what's happened. In the digital world, the landlords, Amazon, Google, Apple, and so on, they own everything and they license it out to you and they can revoke it. So if you have a book on the Kindle and this has happened, I think it might have happened with the book 1984, actually. No way. Yeah, it was, I think, genuinely think it was. It was a very, it was a very famous, ironic book like that. Yeah. And then they lost, the, Amazon lost the rights and then they could basically withdraw it from you. Xbox, well, Microsoft with Xbox have done the same thing with live arcade games. You don't actually own the stuff. You're just an entry on a database. You can be evicted from a game because you, they think you broke some rules or you said something that they didn't like. And we're seeing this on Reddit right now. Hmm. The Reddit are the landlords. You don't own anything you did. They can sell it onto AI companies. They can control the APIs. Now, 
course, they have some rights. Like they have some rights to, but at the moment, all the rights are in their side, and very little is with the consumer. And so they completely dominate. And where this is important is, if you buy some music on from say Apple Music, and then you want to go to an Android device, you don't own the music. You own an entry on Apple's database, and you have you go to an Android phone, you don't own it anymore. Mm. That's wrong. I bought the music already. So that music should go with me wherever I go. Apple, Android, Spotify, anywhere I go, that music is still mine. I, I didn't just buy it on Apple. I just bought it. Now, that doesn't preclude having some extra fee for, say, a Google servicing, mm. like supplying the music. Like if you want to transfer it over, that's fine. We can see you own it, but you can't play it until you pay us 50 pence or something like that. Yeah. Um, so there were subscription fields. Yeah, there, there, there are things around it which, which, which are fair enough. But fundamentally, we don't own our stuff in the digital world. And although I don't believe it should go all the way the other direction because it sort of removes intellectual property rights and so on, you, you can't just get something and do whatever you want with it, which I know some people talk about and they're idiots because they're not thinking about creators. They're just thinking about themselves as owners. We do need a better, better way of doing things. And the irony about a lot of the anti-NFT stuff and even some of the anti-finance stuff within crypto at the moment, you're seeing in the US and from a lot, a lot of the Western media in particular. On the one hand, they complain about big, massive monopolists controlling everything. On the other hand, here we've got this other thing that takes some power away from them. And they go, well, we don't want that because oh, it's, it means people are trading everything. It's just terrible. It's like, yeah, that's what happens when you don't have a big company dominating everything and telling you exactly what you can do. So do you want the big companies owning everything, all our property rights, all the financial services, everything, or do you want to democratize it? If you democratize it, yes, you get good and bad. If you don't democratize it, they're in charge and only the rich, powerful people get everything. Mm. And the media uh, and certain politicians are just playing absolutely into those hands. Without going on to a side topic too much, what we're seeing in the US where the big existing financial organizations are now diving into crypto at the same time as every other organization is being thrown out of crypto says an awful, awful lot about the way the world works. And the media have just played into that narrative they've been played. At the time of recording, we've seen um, BlackRock applying for I think there's some deliberation as to whether it's a trust or an ETF, but with Coinbase as the the backend custodian, we've seen um, Citadel and, and Charles Schwab and you know Citadel who outbids the Constitution DAO for the Constitution, creating an exchange. Who has famously been anti NFT or anti crypto in the past. I mean Jamie Dimon who runs JP Morgan. JP Morgan have been one of the biggest players in the blockchain space since since the inception of blockchains. It's it, it's quite funny, but. I want to touch on one specific thing you said that I have known to be a good thing, but only realized how important recently, whereas I'm now old enough to have seen Facebook be the thing that I used for like 10 years and then become crap. I'm now in a position where I've seen Twitter go from something I really enjoyed using to something that I've now have to have like an Arsenal account, because if I tweet once about me being an Arsenal fan, all I see on my timeline is about how shit Aston Villa are or something random like that. And until the algorithms get better, it's it's easier to segregate. I've always been a big fan of like RSS feed based media, a la newsletters, podcasts, where if a service is shit, I can pick it up, take my subscribers and go move to another distribution service. And now you can say I'm still at the mercy of an email client with newsletters, like Google can ch uh, choose to make my newsletters go to junk or Hotmail can choose to, to bar me or whatever, but I still have that email list. And same with podcasts, like Spotify could downgrade my discoverability or Apple could, but at least I can lift and shift. 
And that aspect is really important to where I guess we think the kind of decentralized side of this is going because you should be able to, if you don't like a service, lift and shift your digital identity or property online and move to another. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's more than just, I like the term lift and shift, but it's more than just that. It's about sharing. That sharing aspect is super, super important because yes, I can migrate my subscribers or I can move my data from Facebook to wherever. And we should be able to do that. And blockchains absolutely have a role to play in that. As the federated databases, which is somewhat more of a somewhat in-between thing, uh, we're starting to see more federation-type platforms appear. But you also got to be able to share, share your stuff with other people and share it with multiple platforms. So actually, NFTs are a great example because I can, my one NFT, I can go to Blur, I can go to OpenSea, mm. I can go to a Discord and use Collabland. I can go to numerous different applications like Floor and so on. So I can share it with multiple applications. I can share it directly with another person. I can see it on Etherscan. I've got numerous ways I can share that NFT. And on the flip side, someone else can offer me services based on the fact that I own that NFT. And they can be anyone. I might have to opt to share it with them. I might not. That's, that's a, obviously a discussion point. But they can offer me a service based on the fact that I own, for example, a Nike swoosh NFT. They go, oh, you're into Nike, you're into sports or whatever. And th- I mean, this will lead us into the sports topics. Because NFTs do represent what our interests are in some form. Just like, you know, we're walking around, uh, we were talking just before this podcast, I was looking at people's shoes on the Jeep and so many people were wearing Nikes and then you could spot Adidas, then you could spot Converse. Anyone in marketing is going to, is taking a read from that. That's what they want mm. to know. And then what they want to do is go, right, if you own Nikes or you're an Adidas fan, here's something just for you. If you're a Wolves fan or an Arsenal fan, here's something just for you. Sharing it away from the domain where it started it's potentially really, really powerful. You can't do that when you're just on an Apple data space. You can't do that when you're just on a Google data space. You can't do that when you're just on Arsenal's data space. Mm. There's no sharing. And open data almost always trumps closed data in those circumstances for marketeers, for people selling, for just for personal enjoyment even. And this is where NFTs are fantastic. And I think that the financialization of NFTs, including and especially in sports, actually, basically it gets people's backs up and they miss what's actually important. Firstly, they miss the fact that it's actually important that they can be financialized. That's actually very, very important. It's a clear and obvious use case. And everyone says there's no use case. And they go, billions of dollars of trading. Oh, that's not a use case. It's billions of dollars of trading. How can you possibly say that's not a use case? You might argue you don't like it. You might argue we shouldn't financialize art or tickets or anything like that. Like That's a separate argument. But to hear people say it's not a use case is insane. But it's enabled by the fundamental use case, which is Property rights, that is a fundamental use case. Mm. It's my stuff. I share it with whoever I want. I sell it to whoever I want. I sell it, destroy it, give it away, just moving away from the, the financialization. Mm. Sharing it with whoever I want means I can get benefits from that. Now, a database person will say to me, well, we could just have a database where we, you can see what, what football club you support. And if you bought a season ticket, or if you bought that music. And we're going, yes, all those databases exist. They're all silos and monopolies, and they close down all the time. That's or the they use APIs that can change exactly. price at any time. It's, it's, we've seen it's, the same, it's, it's the same situation. Yeah. You're talking about everyone wanting to do it in their own way, and then they want to protect their data. And then once they get big, they cover, as we're seeing from Reddit, they make decisions you don't like. Think of it more like um, there's a big table, and all the information is on the table, and all the platforms go to that table and take what they want away from that. But fundamentally, you're the only one that can lift something off that table mm. and put it back on. But all the platforms go to the same table, which is inefficient and a little bit expensive at times for certain things. Depending what, And there's lots of different types of table. 
they're all having to go to a table. At the moment, they're all sat at their own table. It's like going to anyone who's been to like investment things. Everyone sits on their own table and you go and sit down and you do your pitching or whatever. Uh, and everyone likes their own format and stuff. So everyone's got their own table and they don't talk to each other. When everyone's around one big table, they can talk to each other and they're sharing the same data and no one gets to say what that table looks like because mm. they can only choose it all together what that table looks like. That's such a critical point. When I've discussed it with people, they're like, yes, but it's so inefficient. Yeah, but what's more inefficient? No one talking to each other and closing down things and nothing ever happening or everyone just having one place to do it and it just happens anyway. Maybe perhaps not in the way they'd like, but it's in a much better way for me as a user or consumer and better overall generally because the data is open and the format is open and it just exists and it doesn't get closed down and there's not an API that changes all the time. It's a public good. That's the point. And digital property ownership should be a public good. It shouldn't be private. Private companies get to offer me services based on what I own. They might charge me for those services. They might offer me a better interface for those services. They might offer me a ways to buy and sell stuff. There might be a collecting interface. Who knows what it is? Mm. But they should be selling me services based off that. Even your Facebook data. Mm. You mentioned Facebook. I stay on Facebook only because I sell stuff every now and again on there and to catch up with friends. But if I could share that data easily with someone else who offered me the same kind of service as Facebook, but perhaps it was a better interface or with better politics or more privacy, then maybe I should. And I don't care whether you're left or right wing. It's, it's like, whatever, wherever you go, you should be able to take that data, the Twitter data, Reddit data, migrate it around. If Reddit were just offering a service, but actually all the Reddit posts themselves were on some sort of federated platform, as we're seeing with Blue Sky and Twitter. Yeah, with Blue Sky, which is a Twitter or service that's been developed, in theory, anyone could develop an interface around that. And perhaps it uses your an NFT or some other blockchain system for your identity. And perhaps that identity system allows you to prove you're over 18 or what territory you're in. Blue Sky never control that data. All they could do is using a blockchain system to go, are you over 18? And your blockchain identity system attests that you are over 18. It's also important for football clubs. Crypto can do all this kind of identity layer as well. It's kind of similar. But who you are is also partly what you own and, mm. and so on. So all these things are really, really important. And... They affect sports as they affect anything else, if you're going to consider sports and crypto. I mean, let's shift gears into sports. Like, where do you think some of this innovation has gone wrong? Like, on the brand side, you, you kind of talked about, like, what people are missing who are detractors of, of this technology. But on the brand side, where have people done things not as well? I mean, there was the Animoca F1 game that didn't get a relicense they had to basically stop selling the licensed assets, reskin everything and make their own assets again. John Terry with the, his board Ape monkey club that he created where he used the FA Cup and, you know, almost got sued, stuff like all these kind of weird things that have happened. Where do you think it's mainly gone wrong on the kind of brand side? So as soon as you do have financialization, and this is where I do understand criticisms, although I think they're incorrect, People go for money. Brands, they're there to make money and they're like, oh, look, this thing in crypto is selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, we want some of that because, like, we're a brick brand. So, surely people are going to buy our stuff. And it was inev inevitable that that was going to happen. And also, inevitable it was going to collapse. Just like, also, think it's inevitable it will settle down and say, actually, this is what it's really good at, which is some aspect of financialization and some aspect of other things. So, what went wrong? People chasing money. People chasing lots of money and not thinking about offering. A valuable service. And that's obviously emphasised in a very commercial sector like sport. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about sports is that 
when you are following a football club or baseball or American football, whatever sport it happens to be, people are very tribal and they follow their team or their favorite players and they're a captured audience. So you can be exploitative. Exploitation happens all the time in sports with their fans. Um, and when you're talking crypto, it's even more likely to happen. So I think that the chase for, for quick bucks made them forget they've got to offer something valuable in return. And there isn't much valuable in return that you could do for what they were trying to sell. Mm. Um, there are things you can do, but it wasn't any of that. And it wasn't going to be big bucks, at least at first. Um, so what they should have done or what they should do is think of crypto as an engagement strategy. It doesn't need to be selling anything, but it could be low cost things. I mean, we're all a bit sick of everything being high cost and just going for a crypto crowd. Low cost things, free things, engagement strategies, combinations with tickets, that sort of stuff. Event-based uh, NFTs, which we have seen one or two actually done pretty yeah. well. I really do think they should be an engagement thing. And then money will start coming out of that once people understand it. Or laterally, right? It doesn't yeah. have to directly come from there, but like oh, if yeah. you have a specific NFT and you get discounts on merchandise, tickets, whatever, it can drive sales. Yeah, I'm not saying that money comes out of it because you're the, you then get to sell those NFTs. I don't think that should be how it is. I don't think you should be selling anything that they weren't really selling before. Mm. It's just that there's a digital aspect to it and that aspect is in the form of an NFT. And it can be as simple as like when you buy a physical shirt that celebrates an event or a football shirt or whatever happens to be, you know, a World Cup, then then you have a digital NFT for that. That digital NFT, they could have done deals with Fortnite or whatever or, or football games. That means you get some, con- some non-NFT content in those games or you can claim it. There's all sorts of things you can do because going back to my um, description of it being a table, we'll stick with football because that's the sport I know best. You're FIFA, you run the World Cup, you give away some NFTs to people who buy tickets or go to the events or attend a fan, a fan thing, whatever happens to be. Um, you have a, like a, some NFT that represents that. Now, FIFA, they're not speaking directly to Wolves. They're not speaking directly to Nike. I mean, I know they do, but you know, just for the sake of argument, they're certainly not speaking directly to Fortnite. But what Fortnite, Wolves, Arsenal, Nike, clothes stores, they're all still sat around the table if they want to. And all they have to do is query the blockchain. Do you own the World Cup NFT? Mm. If you do, then we're going to give you a 10% discount on merch this week. Brilliant. I mean, it's so no absolute no-brainer. We've seen a couple of examples, right? Like um, what McLaren are currently doing, where you collect a NFT from every race so far. I think they've given away over like 1.5, 1.7. I didn't know this. <laughs> uh, should have, it's on a chain that you don't use that frequently, so... You know, Manchester United um, did something quite interesting where they gave away almost a million NFTs. I think it was a, a record on the Tezos blockchain um, on that day where they kind of minted those free NFTs. And then they sold, I think, 7,777 because the number seven of Manchester United, of course, is um, so famous. Uh, I, I don't say that bitterly as an Arsenal fan who's been hurt by a number seven at United many, many times. They then sold those for 30, 30 quid each. People kind of enjoy And I don't know where it will go, how successful it will be in the future. I've spoken to their team. They've got some pretty interesting plans. But I think as a base layer, as a start of having an on-chain network of fans, where you can go is as important as what you do. Yeah. Firstly, I used to sing You're Not the Real Ronaldo or Ronaldo when he first <laughs> joined United. I distinct memories of doing that. He turned out to be quite good. Or I'm just a step over idiot. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, no, I think that I'd like to see people not sell NFTs for a while mm. when they're in sports organisations. And give them away where people don't even necessarily know their NFTs and try and find where they can be used. I don't think the technology is ready yet. And I mean that mainly because there's still lots of chains fighting it out. There's lots of issues with that. There's lots of incompatibilities. 
there's still lots of wallet stuff, wallet issues, lots of regulatory issues. So I think there's a lot of factors that mean it, it's very difficult to make it work right now well. But if you're giving stuff away now, you are starting to establish a fan base. But I think there's just lots of technical reasons why it's tricky and why sports companies get things wrong because it is hard. You mentioned that Man United or Formula One are doing stuff on Tezos or on other chains. And the fact there are multiple networks, let's call them networks, is really com- very confusing for people because they go, oh, I've got a Manchester United NFT. Yeah, but how do you use it? How do you share it? It's very difficult to answer that sometimes. The aggregation layer isn't there yet. Yeah. And, and yeah, my, my view is still that until Apple and Google on their devices offer by default a crypto wallet that makes all this trivial, it won't work. Hmm. I just don't, I, it don't, won't work in the mainstream way. Something might break out and that Unless would be Unless we Solana phones. Uh, maybe. No. Um, so I just think to, to mainstream stuff, it has to be natural on your phone. And you, you, your Apple wallet just has to, you know, oh yes, here's my Manchester United NFT. Has to sort it all for you, has to insure it all for you, have to make it all safe and recoverable, has to show, here's your networks that you have, Tezos, Ethereum, whatever. If you don't have anything on Tezos, it doesn't show anything. It's all this type of stuff. Filter out all the rubbish so you don't see, only see the things that are appropriate to you, that you don't see spam. Hmm. There's a lot of this stuff, which is actually technically not difficult to do. This is, these are regulatory issues. Hmm. Um, the regulations make this very, very tricky which is why I'm very critical of regulatory agencies because one of the reasons we've had so many scams is lack of appropriate regulation because it's so risky. You can't set up these wallets. The Apple and Google, they can't risk it. They'd just be in the in the firing line. Mm. And it's allowed scams to proliferate, which makes crypto looks bad. And while I wouldn't call a lot of sports one scams, I don't think they've exactly been beneficial to consumers in many ways. And that also is a side effect of lack of decent regulation. Yeah, and, and I, I think like intrinsically there's been nothing wrong with a lot of these propositions but like if they are just something you can trade or if they are just something that's been done and then never touched again obviously it's not a scam but it is like just a a product that as you mentioned has been exploited of the fans which has fueled the optics to be incredibly bad for web3 in in the sports industry in gaming as well which we'll talk about soon on the sports front, you mentioned jerseys there. One of the examples you really like to give when you're trying to explain to people in the sports industry about why this could be useful is the authentication of like jerseys, for example. Why don't you go into that example uh, that you like giving? It's not so much authentication of jerseys, I have to say. I think that authentication of uh, using NFTs that go along with, say, football shirts mm. or other merchandise, I think is interesting. But I don't think it's about authentication because authentication only matters with high-value goods. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't matter with anything else. So if you're doing luxury stuff or high-end stuff or, say, signed... Yeah, yeah, sorry. That, yeah, yeah. That's then I think that's more interesting. But I also think that's a, real, that's a niche and not the big use. Mm-hmm. What's more interesting is when you're buying the football shirt or the sports jersey, is that you have an entity that represents that as well in the digital space. And that that has some use. It does have to have some use. It can't be just completely there and then no one ever uses it. Use has to go, it can include your club shop, but it also has to include your club sponsor, for example. Mm. Your club sponsor, whether it's a sportswear company, I'm not going to say gambling company, but they could use this. Mm -hmm. Um, They should also be able to see, oh, you bought the shirt and offer you some advantages. FIFA as a sports, whatever the next FIFA sports game is going to be, or EA with their football game, they should be able to look at that and go, oh, you bought the uh, wool shirt in 2023-2024 season, so you can de- you get this little bonus in the game. 
And I just think those are the things that they're not over financialization. They're never going to be worth for anything. The value is very, very low to negligible. But the return to me as a fan is like FIFA knows the moment I load it up, it knows I'm a Wolves fan because it knows what my account is. It knows I'm a Wolves fan and it knows I've spent money on Wolves. So it gives me something extra. So it shows I'm a season ticket holder. Maybe I get like some bonus players or something. You know, it, I get some different shoes I can wear. Just really minor stuff, but it still makes me feel special because it knows I'm a Wolves fan and I bought football shirts. Hmm. Maybe it knows I've got multiple football shirts and it does something even special for that because you own a Man United shirt as well. Maybe it just doesn't give you anything because you shouldn't own a Man yeah. United shirt and be a Wolves fan. But the point is that it's, it gives you opportunities to do these things. I, and I think that if you are in sports as a games company or as a sportswear company, these are big, you know, two big mainstream, like really totally mainstream areas, commercial areas. I think if they don't think it's valuable, then I'm wrong. And that's fair enough. But I would have thought as a consumer that it's valuable to be able to see that someone spends money on mm. football gear and they spent it in the last year and they spent £100. Well, I can estimate how much as a market person. Yeah. They bought three football jerseys. They probably got a family. They bought 20 football tickets for Arsenal. Uh, they went to the Formula One thing. I just feel that that data is valuable and could be used in a valuable way. It doesn't have to be in a negative way. At the moment, we don't even know how our data is transmitted around the world. In this case, at least we know and it's clear. The value of the stuff that's owned might be precious little to someone else. But if I've got a little collecting app and I can see, well, I bought a football jersey every year and it's ticked the box and stuff like that, it's probably going to incentivize me to keep collecting as well. Because mm. people collect for lots of reasons. It's not just... A, most people don't collect to sell stuff on. They collect because it makes them feel good and they want to share it with someone else or things like that. You have to factor in the whole collecting mentality. And in sports, like collecting in sports, that naturally goes together. Yeah. That's absolutely why, natural. Why not Panini stickers? If Panini are a billion dollar revenue company a year, like proof of contact. Yeah, but don't want to go back to it being about money. Make it just part of when you're buying a season ticket or you're buying a match day ticket or you're buying a football jersey or you're buying some merchandise from your, you know, from an ice hockey team. Associate those with an, any significant purchase. Associate it with a digital NFT for that season. It doesn't have to do anything except come, come up in a collection app. It doesn't have to do anything else. Just come up in a collection app. And that already has value to me as a consumer because I can see all the stuff that I've done. And you can incentivize me to complete that set on my phone. And you can notify me when, when there's a new offer based off the fact that I own this shirt. You can even, the phone app can notify me 10% discounts at Nike today. And I can control those notifications like I can control any notification. Mm. And that's the world we should live in. That is a marketing person's dream. But even me as a consumer, as long as I've got control, I can opt into it or I can opt out of it, whichever you prefer. It just feels like that's how it should be. Then stuff which is more sales-based, because people understand this area, stuff that's more sales-based will then become part of it. Will some of it be exploitative? Well, you can argue that any sp any major sport is exploitative with its fans. Like, do, football, do Premier League clubs need to charge what they do for season tickets? Hell no, they don't. Because most of their money just get, ends up going to the players. If they didn't charge much for season tickets, Premier League would be absolutely fine. We'd just be much better off. But they exploit their fans and that, that exploitation comes through in the wages. So they already do. So I think that's a bit of a non-argument. So I just think, find what why people would use the NFTs in the first place. Give it to them free. Start hooking up these things an experiment, once you found product market fit, essentially, once a younger audience start going, oh, well, where's this NFT? You start seeing them collect them or swap them. Other apps start coming out. Then you know that you found something that works and that you can start doing something with. I think they wouldn't dive into the money aspect and token aspect, say with socials and stuff, 
and they didn't actually look for what people wanted. Mm. The issue you've got, and we can touch on this soon, is like, it's not as easy as just launching a product and then being like, oh, I didn't work because it's on chain, right? Like everything's out there and there's no control. And so you better be sure that what you're doing is right or going to be decent. Because if it's not, there are certain things that when you make decisions at the start of like specific propositions, you just can't change. You gave a good example with Animoca and the Formula One license. So if you're a brand licensing out... I think it's called Alpha Time. I, I was following this at the time, actually. Um, if your brand and you license something out, typically they're doing it because they're paid a big wedge of money by company or by a crypto blockchain because they're trying to attract content. I don't think attracting content works. It, it didn't work for games companies, typically. Um, they, the, the way they well, the way platform Sony, Microsoft, and the way those new platforms used to work is they constantly look for exclusives to try and have that be what makes the platform work. It worked just for the first big, yeah, the one or two really big companies. Didn't work for anyone else whatsoever. There are lots of companies that have tried it, and I think it's the same with these brands. I think the brands make the money, and that's great. But anyone paying them the money is throwing good money after bad. But yeah, what happens when the license expires? They have to if you're if you're a brand licensing something out or you're doing the licensing, you've got to have a very very clear plan that ideally is provided to your consumers, to your buyers, what are you going to do when that license expires? Does the product end? Are the NFTs valueless? And there's nothing wrong with saying, yes, we we will only be doing stuff for this period of time. And the NFTs, they're yours to keep, but we're not going to build anything else after that, most likely. That's perfectly okay. They're all scared of doing that because they've gone into this over-financialization of assets. If you're selling stuff for $200, that's what's going to happen. Hmm. If you sell stuff for $20, $30, and you commit to it for two years... People buy in-game stuff all the time for five, ten, fifteen dollars. Yeah, they're okay with it expiring for a couple of months as well. Yeah, you yeah. can still use it within the game; it doesn't go away. But you're not going to get anything new from it. Maybe someone down the line would do something new for that, and that's fine too. So over-financialization becomes a problem in those areas because the companies are so scared of people not buying their assets because they they might not be worth more in the future. That that's a problem. That again goes back to why we need to have more about the use cases of these assets and make them low cost or free and collectible, let them accrue the value and don't overpromise. And that goes for how brands choose their partners and how licenses should choose their brands too. It should be a much more non-exploitative, less financialized, and more use case focused scenario. Mm. And the financialization side of things is, is interesting because like we've seen with the Reddit avatar play, whereby... 90% of the people on the platform don't care about making money, or let's say 98%. But there are a few people where they're like, oh, wow, I've, I've got a valuable NFT here and I've sold it and I've made money. And so those two worlds can coexist within the same thing, where if there's like a million NFTs and 99% of them are worth not that much, but there are a demographic within that big... Because when you do go mainstream, you are going to have audiences that are there to monetize and commercialize and financialize things. We've seen it with, you know, the reselling of sneakers. We've seen it with like premium brands, luxury goods, where people are reselling all this stuff. It's become very normal in the physical world, but not everyone does it. Like not everyone uses Facebook Marketplace or Vinted or whatever. And not everyone is going to use Blur or OpenSea or whatever in the future. So I think that's a really interesting point to discuss. But one of the things I do really want to talk about, because, you know, you're a gaming veteran, crypto veteran, and you've been talking about what is now happening with Dot Swoosh and Nike and the likes of 
Fortnite and also EA Games for a long, long time now. Why has it taken so long for Nike or any brand to kind of realize, aha, this is the way we should do it when it comes to interoperability? I don't think it's taken them a long time to realize, at least not the smart brands. And I certainly don't think with Nike because they've Mm. been patenting stuff on this for years. So I've been talking about Nike since 2016, saying this is exactly what they're going to do because it's an absolute no-brainer. And now they're doing it. It's not because they didn't think about it. Um, There's numerous issues to doing it. Regulation, which we've talked about. The technology we've talked about. The different chains we've talked about. Then you've also got to add a factor which I didn't foresee, which is the kickback in the West against NFTs and crypto. Mm. And that's dangerous for companies. They have to get involved very, very carefully. Um, I didn't foresee that. That's definitely going to take a good few years to work out the system. So I think there are very good reasons why it took a long time. Um, and the other reason actually is that is it comes back to financialization because when you're trying to pitch an idea internally and some higher up has seen there's loads of money to be made, they will push you to go and do something that's about making loads of money. Sell an NFT collection for $3 million. I've just seen that person do it. Mm. These people are no, and you know, no one's heard of these, but we're Nike. And to be fair, they have made a couple of million dollars from their, from their dot swoosh first drop with the R Force One. I mean, for Nike and the amount of NFTs they sold, it's not a ridiculous yeah. amount. It's on par yeah. with buying sneakers, right? Yeah. But the thing is, it's it, in general terms, not just Nike, in general terms, that's yeah. how a lot of companies will end up looking at it. And what I've just been saying is build your way in gradually, like establish that people want these things, find the best way for them to experience them. We just don't have any of that now. Mm. So thought it's a no brainer, but there's lots of aspects that are problematic not just for Nike, but for anyone. I mean, Nike bought Artifact. They bought in expertise. Mm. Uh, we don't know how commingled those companies are, but you know, we're seeing lots of fashion brands experiment high-end and, and a bit lower-end. But it's, I said, there are just so many holes you've got. Even for me looking at it, like my experience in crypto has been, it moves obscenely fast and incredibly slow simultaneously. And it's quite bizarre to, to have to try and explain this to people. Back in 2013, I told quite a forward-thinking crypto lawyer at the time, I think it's going to be five years, maybe 10 years before we see this really being mainstream. Probably 10 years. That's 2013. It's 2023 now. Crypto is definitely mainstream. Uh, and NFTs definitely became mainstream in their own way. But mainstream in terms of people have heard of them, not mm. have used them. I didn't foresee regulation taking as long as it did. Uh, we're still way, way off right where we need to be regulation-wise. So we're still at least 10 years away. From regulations being even vaguely sensible, I think. But I think now we're at the start of them actually happening. Yeah. Whereas Which 10 years positive, ago, yeah. people were talking about it and nothing ever really happened. There's been so much money involved, so many scams and FTX. Now we're definitely seeing, for better or worse, we're definitely seeing regulations happen. And it'll take a few years to get them right. And once they got right, then I, th- only then do I think things can expand. And regulations are important to companies. So going back to why hasn't this happened, if you don't have regulatory clarity on how you can run a crypto wallet, on whether you can accept crypto, you can't launch these things except very, very carefully. Obviously, lots of people have, and then lots of just different jurisdictions. There's lots of tricky areas to deal with. We recorded episode one with with Mark from the ATP, and he was saying this exactly. He was like, I asked him, what were some of the things that you thought would take you a couple of hours, but took you a couple of weeks? He was like, where was the money going to go? That was one of the things he asked. He was like, where was the crypto going to go and sit, and who was going to have the private keys to it. Who was going to have the logins to a, a Coinbase custodial thing? And then they were like, oh, well, we're obviously going to use non-custodial wallets because we don't want to do the that side of the regulatory 
things. It's just all yeah. so difficult. So the, there are lots of companies that are making this easier and easier. Hmm. Um, and as as we get regulatory clarity and uh, over the next five years, we will, I think we will see that sorted. Uh, I saw that Nike are using BitGo. BitGo have been around for a long time. I knew them when they first started. There's uh, Fireblocks that, that provide other technology for these things. There's quite a few companies around now that are doing it, but it's just around getting the right price point, getting around, getting the right regulatory side, making it as easy to use as a bank account, making sure it's just done through signature. Like all this stuff is happening. People ask me about it quite a lot, but there's no, right now, there's no do this, do this, do this, do this clear path for what you have to do. And until you have that clear path, it's very, very difficult to do experiments. Experiments become expensive and difficult and risky. Um, then you've still got the kickback. Again, it's a Western thing. It is not an Eastern thing. It's a Western thing. There's peculiar kickback towards things. And so that that adds up to it's just harder than you would like to do these things. But I think that the down period we're in now, other than what's happening in the US a little bit, does make it easier to do these experiments. And the companies that come through this will, will establish that path. Hmm. Um, the big goes of this world will be there in a few years' time, offering this as a service, and it'll be so easy you just go there, register, you can be anyone, show your IDs. Right, okay, it just be like working with a business bank account. This person can have full access. This will also convert to sterling or to dollars when the money comes in. Uh, we'll do all your VAT calculations. All that's got to be, it just has to be automated. We also have to have, and this sounds a really weird one, in the EU, if someone buys a digital good, they can refund it if they haven't used it. So if someone pays you, let's say they're paying 0.1 ETH, so $150. And then seven days later, they want a refund. Do you refund them in ETH or dollars? And that's a mess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Whichever way you look at it, it's a mess. You've got the VATs. Everyone loses. So you have to, it has to be clear. When you receive it, you have to repay them back in a local currency that you use. And you have to be clear to them it's going to be in dollars or pounds. It's in a stable coin. Uh, it has to be clear with the VAT. There's so many of these little edge cases because you're dealing with a volatile currency if you sold in that and not in a stable mm. coin that make those currencies impossible to deal with from a tax and regulatory point of view. So we need to have like clear rules. VAT as well. This it's it's I think it's clearer than people think, but it still needs to be handled. We can't comply with a lot of VAT rules without just getting rid of your sales. Because we don't have a credit card that we can check for where the jurisdiction. We just mm. have a crypto. So there's lots of these weird little things that when you're actually trying to do sales, you end up taking risks or having to make decisions because there's no clear path. Mm. If you're a regular merchant you put a shopping cart on, it does everything. It's all clear what your VAT is and you have a back-end system for doing refunds. You don't have, you just don't have any of those issues. So there's a lot of stuff that is now being refined. The accounting side, the tax side, the refund side, it is now being refined, but there should, it has to be a clear path. And then when you've got a clear path, like I'm just using that software, I'm using that software, I'm using that software. I'm done. My accountant knows what they're getting. I'm not taking any stupid risks with currencies. I've told people for years, if you sell something in ETH or whatever, convert it straight away to the US dollars because uh, you get rid of all those problems if you can just if you just convert on a daily basis at least. There are automated ways you can start doing that now, but then speak, all this just needs to be easy. Big companies, small companies, that's it. All this stuff is hard and takes a lot longer than people think to actually get right. Before we move on to part two, where we look at uh, the future a little bit and delve in a bit more into the crossover between gaming, Web3 and sports, I need to remind you that the HBAR Foundation is the ecosystem accelerator of Hedera, the most used sustainable enterprise-grade DLT for the decentralized economy. Together with industry-leading use cases and globally renowned partners, the foundation is actively scaling the Web3 consumer engagement across 
the metaverse, gaming, DeFi, regenerative finance, and beyond. So let's get back to the EA Nike headline, because I think this was probably the biggest thing that I've seen from a sports industry, sports games crossover. When you saw this headline, what was your main reaction? For you, for you that don't know, Dot Swoosh and Nike and Polygon all came out with a press release about three weeks ago now that said that Dot Swoosh assets, NFTs would be usable in future EA games. I thought about bloody time. <laughs> it's, I said, it's, for me, it's a no-brainer. Can you talk about some of the, again, big benefits to this, but also some of the challenges that they'll see? Well, the benefits are we'll actually see if this, uh, if anyone cares. Um, will people buy stuff that then can be used across different games? I can't say any reason why they wouldn't, but it might take some time to establish, well, to help them understand what it actually means. And so if you go and read social media or Reddit or whatever, you know, you find the usual anti-NFT crowd just not getting it. And um, what will be interesting is over time, like once these things start being usable, do people actually use them? Do they care? Are, hmm. the, are the advantages good enough? Do Nike and so on start trying to implement it exploitably, which they could do. They could go, yes, you get access to this, but you still got to pay another $5 for it. That's not going to work. They will work on some things, you know, becomes like a membership scheme. You have to get some stuff that people consider worthwhile because hmm. it's not for free. You paid $20. There was, you know, I got a couple of swooshes and it's 20 bucks. What are you going to give me for my $20? And we know that consumers can be quite fickle and quite vocal. So we actually need to see how do they genuinely react by getting this stuff. Because basically they're buying an in-game purchase out of the game. Mm. You know, and EA are not seeing $20. Yeah. So what kind of deal is it going to end up as? Do you get these really cool sneakers and access to some particular thing that's really worthwhile? Or is it just this cosmetic that no one cares about? That is going to be a bit of a process of experimentation. But I do think it's the right way to go. And I've also consistently said when arguing with game people about NMCs, the best NFTs will come from brands, not games. Because for most games, there's no reason to try and sell your content as an NFT. It doesn't make any sense for all sorts of reasons. It makes a lot more sense for me to give something to someone who owns a Nike NFT than they own a Fortnite NFT. Because hmm. <laughs> it's Nike, right? Okay. Even if you don't have any licensing deal with Nike, I can still give you some really cool sneakers. Yeah. Um, they're not Nike sneakers, but anyone who owns the Nike NFT gets these really cool sneakers and you can around in them in the game. Or you get a sword which is is quite different or special or whatever happens to be. It's just, you're just going, you like Nike, so you probably like sneakers. You're going to get some really cool sneakers in this game and it's free. Or maybe you've got access to buy something that's very cheap. Whatever happens to be. Brands like Red Bull and Nike, Red Bull are the other company I'm waiting to see really do some stuff for. Mm. I know they've done a bit. It's really about what official deals do they set up and then can other platforms and stores, will they start offering things based off it? Mm. And I think eventually they will. But I do think that's several years away. So Nike, what Nike are doing now with Swoosh, it's just a starting point. It's just an experiment. And one thing we have to remember is that you can't just sell something for $20, stop selling, and then continually provide things for that. At some point, you've got to sell more content. How do they continue doing things, continue getting that audience to pay for stuff uh, without annoying that audience? And that's actually a little difficult when it's something as intangible as a Nike swoosh NFT. You have to start doing season passes, but you have to not take away from the fact they paid $20 last year. There has to be some residual value, some mm. residual use. So maybe we will end up seeing Nike season passes just as like you have Fortnite season passes. 
and it gets used in like 10 different games and Nike do lots of little licensing deals. Mm-hmm. I can't predict whether that will work, but I think it's just that's the worthwhile experiment. And then on the Fortnite front, you know, again, the, the press release was that Dot .swoosh members would be able to get a specific NFT from a specific Fortnite game mode, um, which I thought was really interesting. Again, no NFT usable in the game. How does someone like Epic or Fortnite, whose founders and, and higher-ups are very bullish on Web3 and they've talked about it very openly, how do they match that enthusiasm with a business model that just, as you said, wouldn't need NFTs in the game, otherwise it would kill the golden goose? I wouldn't say they're bullish on crypto. Mm. Um, I would say they're interested, okay. which is different. They're not, yeah, they're, yeah. I would say they're they're interested in that realm. I wouldn't say they're bullish, and I would say they, for obvious reasons, that will be very protective about their golden goose. Don't expect Epic to start doing lots of NFT stuff in mm. the near future. But what they may do is let you claim certain things based off an NFT you own, but what you claim won't be tradable. I do think in the future they might well actually more directly support NFTs being represented in game or some of the games will. It might not be Fortnite, but some of the games will, because I think it just makes sense. It's actually not that far off to say, well, if you own the Nike NFT, you can claim this cosmetic. And that cosmetic is only usable in the game. It's not an NFT, it's just a regular thing. That's fine. In fact, for the game that we're doing, that's, that's sort of what we're doing in many ways. We, we do a game called Clodhoppers. And we plan to do some NFT cosmetics. If you buy the character, you can use any of the character's clothing and stuff they have within the game. You can't trade it. You can trade the whole character, but you can, but you can have some other stuff that you just have within the game. We might, might do some other things where you just get to claim them in the game and that's it. And they're in the game, they're non-tradables. Because this is a nice, easy way for people to understand. You're not taking risk with your game economy. At the moment, you're not going to get too much kickback from some of the anti-NFT crowd and the media. So I think that's it's a pretty even-handed way to do things. It doesn't. I don't think it says anything positive or negative about whether they'll support NFTs directly, personally. I think it's just a positive move generally in terms of um, they're showing that they can accept that people who own NFTs are a valid audience to market to. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Clodhoppers as a, like a greenfield new game. Uh, that might incorporate aspects of blockchain. And, you know, on a spectrum, you've got anything from something like Illuvium, who have gone like full decentralized, uh, you know, using a DAO as a gaming studio. They've got a token. Everything in the game is an NFT and it's a AAA game. Uh, is it Star Atlas? The, yeah. yeah, Star Atlas, the, the, the Solana based one. And then you've got like Axie Infinity that have been around for a while with the more play to earn side of things. Where do you see the more crypto side of that spectrum going? I think crypto games will always be a niche. Mm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Because as long as you can make your game viable for whatever size of audience the crypto audience is, then it's a viable game. Niche games have existed for decades. I mean, Dwarf Fortress, which has now done very well as a bigger release, was always it was a niche game for years. Um, so as long as a crypto game can make itself sustainable, which is obviously the big question, mm can make itself sustainable with a crypto-centric or financialized audience. That is just a sector of games that a lot of people won't like, and that's fine. They'll sit there and criticize it and hate on it, but like, that's the modern world we live in. Like, It's not for them, so they get to hate it, as opposed to it's not for them, so they don't touch it, which is how it should be. So games like Star Atlas, I just don't... I could be wrong, but I just don't think we're going to see any breakout crypto games of that mm. style. It's too difficult to do economies that, that make sense. Yeah. And, um, and in-game economy has been a problem off-chain. For, for, yeah, yeah. And, and as soon as you have real, any real-world stuff, you just 
you're just heading into a world of pain. You can still have interim hits like we saw with Axie, and you can have um, uh, hits within a crypto audience. Like, so I think all those things will happen. It's just a, for me, it's just a new class of game. It's a financialized game. Mm. It's totally fine. We've we've had those before too, and they financialized virtual worlds existed. Like we we when I used to do my talks, I talked about some of the older games that were financialized. So they've always existed. It's just now we've got a much better way to do it, which means that you can you, know, you can have more money involved and more people involved, and the people who want to get who wants to do that will be fine. Whereas a player base of a few thousand players would never get a free to, get, keep a free to play going, free to play game going. A few thousand players plus an extra on top doing trading could keep a crypto game going as long as your costs are low enough and as long as you can keep making stuff for that audience. So I think the only question with those is how long can they go for? Hmm. And that is a genuine big question mark, and I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I think I saw a tweet because the other the other side of this is like a lot of NFT projects have started to move into gaming because that's like one of the obvious plays. Uh, I think it was Loopify who tweeted, it's crazy that only four NFT projects have enough runway to build a AAA game. And that's, you know, Yuga and, and, and a few others. Um, and I'd argue that they're not AAA. Yeah. Well, Yuga, I think, are the only AAA. Yeah. The other thing that is weird in this debate is like, as you mentioned, you can have a spectrum, right? You can have the full-blown, we've got a token, everything in the game is an NFT, to... We don't have a token. Some of the items in the game are NFTs and you can move them around or trade them, whatever. There is some crypto type NFT stuff that's attached to this in some way, like we're kind of seeing with Fortnite and Nike and Dot Swoosh. So there's a, there's a full range of spectrum, which I, I find even madder that you see people who are like, crypto should never touch gaming because there's so many different ways in which it could. Some, as you said, might remain niche. Some might become really mainstream. Yeah, that's just... Unfortunately, just the world we live in is that there are, there are haters and they get to platform their hate and then they get a load of followers that continue that hate and none of them actually know what they're talking about. So, you know, just to use Clot Up as an example. So we're a stop motion fighting game with up to eight players. Um, play offline, online, have your own PvP and PvE mode. It's an indie game that we've been developing for a few years. It, it predates like NFTs. We do open dev so you can find it on Steam. You can come to the Discord, you can play it. And we've never marketed it or done anything financially with it yet because we're just making the game with a small group of us who just love what we're doing so making it with some friends the game is great but now we have to make it self-sustaining i'm in crypto so i always get asked are you going to do a crypto with it anything within crypto and i've always held off because as soon as you commit to it mm. you're like in a hamster wheel of we've got to keep these people happy and i've seen so many teams struggle emotionally psychologically financially from getting stuck in that hamster wheel and then the hamster wheel falls off and they fall out and everyone dies basically. The whole project dies on its arse and it's just, it becomes a mess. So I've resisted doing it because I didn't want a hamster wheel. The hamster wheel of game dev is hard enough without having a load of people crying, when's my token going to go up in, in value? So what we've chosen to do, this is just an example and it's not definite, it's just what the direction we're going in, is we want to have, we're like, we need to have a regular audience. We're not a crypto game. We need to have a regular audience on Steam who don't allow NFTs. So the Steam game is a regular game like any other with no NFTs. If you did own some of our NFTs, because we do expect to do some, you will download your, a special version of the game, not from Steam. It might be on the Epic Store, because Epic are a bit more open about this. And the only difference between the games is one version will look and see what NFTs you own, and the other won't. That's it. When you're playing against people, you'll be playing against the same people. The gameplay is exactly the same. But if you do own some NFTs, and the NFTs come in two forms, backer passes, which are like a Kickstarter pass. So you paid for a specific tier on Kickstarter or our equivalent and characters. 
which are separate NFTs that you can get as a result of having backer passes. Mm. If you own the character, you can use the character in the game and you can also use all the bits that are on the character on other characters in the game. So essentially you've got, there's some exclusive characters and parts that are just cosmetics that you can use within the game. And other players may see you with that character. They might be like, how do you get that? Where you say, I, I have a backer pass, basically. They are the backers. And that's how they'll be seen. Mm. The backer passes may also give you other things. So give you ownership of the game, other extra cosmetics, uh, might give you extra characters. Who knows what it will be. But we separate the audiences. We have a regular audience who don't know anything about NFTs. They have their thing. Then the NFT audience who can buy and sell this stuff. They're just characters. They're not going to be high price. There's extra, con- extra stuff we've got for them. But we've always refer to them as our backers, just like if there was a Kickstarter backer. And essentially, it's like Kickstarter, but you get something you can trade and we can keep releasing extra content to you. Hmm. So you can might you might have even paid for a tier where you get a physical poster or a, a t-shirt or whatever, or a load of extra digital content. It's exactly like Kickstarter and at Kickstarter prices. There cannot be any complaints about that, although there will be because people hate NFTs. It's Kickstarter, but you get a digital token that represents you took part in the Kickstarter that you can sell on. That's it. So, we, But we separate the audiences and we'll refer to them as backers to try and avoid the, the combat. There's no token involved. So that's an example of where we do support NFTs directly but on a limited basis to a limited audience. It's not over-financialized. We're not going to say it's going to be worth more money. We're not going to do lots of things for them in the crypto space. You know, there might be some bits, like we might do some extra whitelists, but we're not going to keep doing loads of crypto stuff unless that audience tend to turn out to be amazing and the value has got really high and we can make that work for us. To us, it's you've got something, it's tradable, it's usable within the game, We'll see what we can do for you. You're going to keep getting stuff as far as we can do it that makes sense within the game. And that's it. Because you're basically being our backer. You're basically being our Kickstarter backers. We're not selling stuff at hundreds of dollars. We're not giving you a token. And I think for for game companies, seeing it as a Kickstarter type thing, it's just Kickstarter where you can sell on your backer pass. And if you look at some of the Kickstarters where games failed or where they succeeded, those backer passes could actually be really valuable. Hmm. Let's say we get... Let's say the, our main game does really well and we get you know, a couple hundred thousand buyers, which would be fantastic. We'd be very, very happy with that. That's the regular game. Well, those people who've got the rare characters as NFTs, they're going to be very happy too because they've got the rarest, most expensive characters. You can have a subset of that audience who have some interest in yeah. trading or financialization. And, and We've got some other things we can actually do if we did get a big audience of regular players to, to co-mingle them in ways that are interesting. We have got some ideas for that. We'd only do it if we had a really big audience here mm. to basically give something extra to this audience here. Like I went to go into the details, but there are things that we can do. Yeah. But fundamentally, if you like what we're doing and you Kickstarter us, you, you back us, you get a token that represents the tier that you backed. You get rewards that are exactly the same as it would be on a Kickstarter that you just redeem. You keep your token, but you just redeem parts of it, essentially. Like you've redeemed the T-shirt part, you redeem the poster part, you redeem a character part. And then we might do more stuff because you're still a backer. And the backer pass will always represent ownership of the game. And the game costs, it's going to cost $20 to own the game. So if our cheapest backer pass is $15 or $20, the worst case, you're just buying the game because yeah. you like the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we will do. Our cheapest pass will be $15 or $20, like all those dollars. It'll be in that realm. It's the same price as the lowest tier on Kickstarter. What is wrong with an NFT being used in the same way as on Kickstarter at that point? It's exactly the same. And when you think about it, and this is one of the first things I researched, if you go to newretro.org, you can find this research. I spent a weekend in Berlin getting drunk with a lawyer friend of mine, going, what if you could sell secondhand games as NFTs? We didn't call them NFTs at the time because we didn't have that term. And I did some research on it over that weekend. And if you think about it, if you've done a 
backer pass at $20, $30, and it gives you access to the game, to a backer version of the game, what you've actually done is you've issued a limited edition version of the game that mm. can be re- arbitrarily resold. Yeah. And I wouldn't be scared of doing that now because it, we separated the audience a little bit um, because it's quite hard to find this. Only an empty audience can get it. But suddenly we might have sold 2,000 limited edition versions of the game, but it's through a kind of backdoor way of doing it, but that's what we've done. And that makes sense. Mm, Again, it does. Who, so the anti-NFT crowd, I would say to them is, who loses from this? Same pricing as Kickstarter, more benefits. Mm. Where's the? Tell me where the negative is. Crypto. Yeah. The negative they might come back with is, well, this is causing financialization of it. I'm like, yeah, but that's the community that decide that. We're not financializing it. We're yeah. giving them the opportunities to do what they want, just as you can in the physical world. So you go to eBay, financialization of collectible games all over the place. Trading cards, limited edition games, uh, rare SNES games, all financialized on eBay. Why should you not be able to do that in the digital world? You need to be able to do it with some protection because yeah. this goes back to the start of the conversation. In the digital world, and this goes for sports tickets as well, you can really quickly, set, like the, you can buy and sell instantly uh, and with very low overhead. In the, digital, in the physical world, there's a lot of friction. So you do have to have some protections, like you might, you might not want things selling more than once every seven days or stuff like that. So you do want some protections because of um, the efficiencies that digital gives you. But in general terms, it makes a lot of sense. Let's talk uh, more broadly a little bit about what you're kind of excited about. You said in the next decade, we're going to see regulation, for example, really come to the fore in a way that protects consumers, but allows the entrepreneurs to innovate. What do you, well, I hope. <laughs> hey, I hope so. Any fingers crossed. I don't know. What are you most excited about over the next few years? It's actually quite a difficult question because a lot of things I've been excited about, we've sort of seen. I think what I, what I actually... It's not so much excited. What I want to see is a settling down of things so that we do have a clear path to how we release NFTs so that it is easy for people who want to innovate or content creators or artists to do things without risk, whether it's currency risk, regulation risk, task risk. I don't think that there's now specifically new technology per se that I'm massively excited about because there's lots of technology that now we know is going to come through, which is going to make things cheaper to do, easier, safer. But it sort of is already there. It's more, it's now about refinements. It's years of refinements, but we now actually have a path to, yeah, for example, making Ethereum more efficient, having bridges between chains that are better. But the, the chains that are actually interesting are ecosystem-wide. Mm. And that, I'm afraid, it is unexciting. It is, can we have regulation that actually allows us all to work cleanly, that allows Apple to have a crypto wallet? Allows uh, the companies to have bank accounts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. So it really is about a settling down of things, clear paths, um, making things easy to use, user experience, getting rid of thefts and scams. There's a lot we could do to get rid of a lot of those. We're, we're seeing now more software to help you protect your wallet. We need all this to become standard. So it's really about, we've got all these different things. We know what a lot of the problems are now because we've just been through another hype cycle. We've seen genuine utility this time, not like 2017. This time we've genuinely seen things that people want to do. But now we actually need to go, right, here's all the problems that we found in that, from regulatory issues to security, to usability. Let's refine that down so that next time we've got a much clearer road for consumers and for companies doing stuff and for artists who want to create their own content. It's like the after party. You've gone to a party. It's just madness everywhere. We're now looking at, and there's hardly anyone left, there's a couple of stragglers, and there's just like a mess and things have been smashed up, loads of things have been stolen. But fundamentally, everyone really enjoyed it and they want the next one. But the next one's got to be a little bit tamer, 
a little bit calmer. <laughs> Everyone knows what they're doing. They're not going to smash up the bar. They're not going to trash the swimming pool. Your parents will feel like they can come along. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It won't be as exciting. I, I will say, that then. the serious point is, it is a bit like that because it just getting rid of the scams, a lot of that crappy stuff will tame it and will make it, will sanitize some things. Mm. But if you want to be mainstream, it has to be sanitized. Nice thing about crypto is there will always be this unsanitized part. Whatever regulators do, there will always be an unsanitized part. And there is an audience for that. That's totally fine. There is an anarchist audience there. There is a, an anti-government audience there. There's a, you know, a libertarian audience there. They don't want any of this. They will still do what they want. And you're not going to, no laws are going to stop them doing it. This is how it is. That's fine. They will have the party in the basement. The rest of us need to be over here if you want this stuff to be mainstream. Mm. This cannot ever be mainstream, whatever they think. It can't be. This can be, but we've got to, you've got to be able to go to that party and your parents have to think it's safe. Yeah. And you yeah, have to yeah. think your kids can go there. Because going back to sports, you don't want your kid buying socios tokens and then trading those and then losing all your money. You need to go, oh yeah, you got the NFT for the, the that ticket or for... Um, that merchandise, and that's all fine. It's in a nice application. I know you're not being ripped off. Yeah. So it genuinely is a sanitization that's required. Yeah. What do you think is being overhyped at the moment that you don't think is going to be that big a thing in the next three to five years? Um, I'm still very wary of games and crypto. And it's not that I don't think games and crypto can't work well. I do. But I think that games with heavily embedded crypto, I just don't think the economies can work well enough. Mm. And I think there's a lot of games that are going to try and do it, and I think they're going to fail. I think games with lightweight crypto integration, I think will work much better. And I think they make a lot of sense. We'll have to see if they happen. But uh, economies based on crypto and volatile crypto tokens, I just don't think we can build economies like that. I think it's just, I said, I think there'll be a niche. I'm not saying they won't happen. But I think people expect them to be this huge next big thing. And I don't think they will be. Some games are going to find the right way to do things. I'm just not convinced about tokenization of economies mm. yet. Uh, let's see. We're going to round off with some of the things that I probably should have asked at the beginning. And some of these we did ask in the beginning. But like as I've mentioned, you've had some great debates with people over the last 10 years. What do you see as some of the most common things that detractors of you know Web3 get wrong? I think they get blinded by financialization. That's the biggest thing. I also think that they become very aware of the big money and scams. Their pictures are very distorted. And I think that the te more technical crowds just cannot grasp that blockchains are not databases. They have a different use case. They don't see financialization as a use case, which is insane. It's, it's just so, it's so dumb. I can't actually begin to describe how blinkered you have to be to not see billions of dollars in trading as a use case. But they don't. Whatever. What are some of the things on the other side that critics are, are right about that do need fixing over the next few years? Scams. Scams and thefts. You can't have an exchange like FTX uh, and now Binance to an extent. You can't have this ongoing situation where every year or every bull cycle, people are losing money to scams. And FTX allegedly uh, did some pretty dubious stuff, I'll say allegedly, but like it's obviously there's an ongoing case around that, but it certainly blew up in everyone's face. Mm. There have been various centralized lending protocols they were lending to each other, way overvaluing each other's assets. And of course, as soon as one collapses, they all collapse. None of that can happen. That's, that is a regulation thing. And the reason it happened is because regulations were not clear. Like some of these things could be, could be legitimate, but they've got to be regulated. And by not having good regulation, they just go offshore and do whatever they want. Yeah. So you have to have regulation that's appropriate for what it is. If you have too much regulation, they will go offshore and we see what happens. If you don't have enough regulation, 
they just do this stuff anyway. So you have to have portion of regulation that allows for innovation, but that's protective. It has to, it has to be a reasonable balance. And so far, we've swung from one to the other, one to the other. If you even have regulation, because mostly it's just about statements. Yeah, there's no the lack of clarity is the biggest issue. Centralized lending protocols are totally fine, but there should be a process for the, like how they work, and they shouldn't be able to be lending on highly illiquid assets. Yeah, they're all valuing assets in a crazy, crazy way. So, no risk management. Certainly, with some of them, <laughs> I would say poor risk management. Allegedly, no risk management. But poor risk management can happen anywhere, as we've seen with some banks. But there are some which are very obviously, well, if you're pricing everything in a bull market in it with illiquid tokens and that token goes down, you're or, in real trouble. Or problem. lending against tokens that might drop 90%. No, but, that, but, that's, yeah. but that's entirely based on a token prices here, it's a very liquid market and a bull market. So yeah. at the moment you're not in this market, you, you're screwed. They're all doing all these loans that made no sense. They're offering massive returns, which you, well, I never bothered because I knew what would happen. You can't offer 20% returns in Bitcoin Ether without doing lending. So it was all high risk and it, all, it was all a house of cards. So... Critics are completely right that the area was full of scam artists and already experienced people running financial organizations. They're completely right about that. But you can only fix it with appropriate regulation. You can't fix it with inappropriate regulation because it pushes it offshore. And let's let's round off on that, right? Current state of play is that the US are pushing hard against some more greenfield, I say greenfield, but like crypto native exchanges. Um, they're also pushing hard against there was part of a case that DAO was actually like financially liable for for a suit. Again, very interesting precedent that, that that sets. On the other side of things, we've got Asia, which is being very progressive. Hong Kong forcing banks to give bank accounts to crypto companies. We've got Micra in the EU, which a lot of people uh, disagree with or have some problems with, but at least it is a semblance, a star, a piece of regulation. In the UK, we might have different government in a year from now, but it does seem that there is a, a crypto bill that was pushed through in July that is now actually going to be pushed hard. And there is this kind of idea of creating a crypto hub here. A lot of the world, apart from, I'd say, probably the US and Australia, are moving in a direction which feels a lot more sensible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the US is complicated because, uh, as we've said, there are some companies, the big financial organizations seem to be like, oh, it's going to be fine, which I think says speaks volumes about what's actually going on there. Some of the anti-crypto stuff in the US is just absolute nonsense and it's clearly very political and about power. Um, it doesn't actually make any sense, but it is what it is. We do need to, through regulation, get to a situation where we have a lot less scams. Because whatever we like to say or think, the amount of money involved, like last year with FTX, and it's not just FTX, um, but through other companies as well, that's been lost to, really, in reality, investors like, you know, the regular user, it's not right. It's not right. And we won't have as big a bull market without those companies, but we shouldn't have a big, a big as big a bull market because if it's being done through, you know, basically dodginess and unsustainable, uh, an unsustainable system, it needs to change. And that's, that is really important. You can't overprotect people. You can't be overprotective. And that's my worry with the US. They're just, well, actually, when they're trying to be overprotective, they're just screwing everyone. So it's not even working. But we do have to protect people a lot more than we are. I actually find it ridiculous that we've got this far in and we have something the scale of FTX. Yeah, that that same, is, yeah. uh, and, and the centralized lending protocols, all of them, it's an absolute disgrace that the crypto industry is, allows it to go on. And they do, because there's a lot of people that just think they should be able to get away with anything. Yeah. And, and as much as we get people going, oh, we don't want regulation, you can't have this going on. You can't. And we're going to get, if you don't have regulation, it's going to happen again and again and again. And you can't mainstream in that world. You just cannot do it. And that affects everything. 
It affects sports NFTs. It affects games. It affects what Nike are doing. It affects fashion or any metaverse plays. Any non-financial plays get affected by the same scams. Yeah, we cannot because have the regulations. Get me blanket. We, we cannot have them. You can't stop every scam. We get scams in the regular world too, but scams dominate in crypto. They don't dominate in the regular world. Yeah, that's the difference, and we have to find a way to deal with it. A great but somber note to end on, I think. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, uh, please do wherever you're watching or listening, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Substack. And you can also subscribe to the newsletter in the notes down below to keep you up to date on all things sports and Web3 every Monday. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pet Berisha, P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A. You'll see it on the screen as well uh, if you're watching or on LinkedIn. Alex, where can people find out more about you and, and what you're doing? Best thing is Silly Tuna on Twitter. Still the easiest place to find me. And you can find Clodhoppers uh, at claymatic.games. Um, there's a Discord link there and I'm there all the time too. Awesome. Uh, just remember that none of what we have said today during the show is financial or business advice and this content is for informational purposes only. Web3 is underpinned by crypto and crypto is volatile, meaning you can lose money if you are buying these assets personally or as a business. Where we are recording right now in the UK the majority of crypto asset companies are unregulated. Please do give us a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to uh, and give us five stars, preferably. And if you are watching on YouTube, leave us a comment, let us know what you thought, and uh, we'll have more of this podcast for you soon.